These days, a lot of people are learning about the benefits of fasting, like weight loss, mental and physical performance, gut health, but they worry about the whole not eating part. Well, that's exactly why Prolon was created. Prolon is a revolutionary plant-based nutrition program that nourishes the body while making cells believe they're fasting, giving you all the benefits. This has been researched and developed for decades at the University of Southern California Longevity Institute and backed by leading U.S. medical centers. Prolon helps promote healthy blood sugar, support cardiovascular health, and reduce abdominal fat. But Prolon isn't a diet, it's science. Science based on Nobel Prize winning discoveries in medicine. And it all starts with Prolon's five-day program. Snacks, soups, beverages all designed to keep your body in a fasting state. If I was going to start a nutrition program, Prolon is exactly what I'd use. Convenience backed by Nobel-winning science that works. Right now, Prolon is offering Beyond the To-Do List listeners 10% off their five-day nutrition program. Go to prolonlife.com slash beyond. That's P-R-O-L-O-N-L-I-F-E dot com slash beyond for this special offer. That's prolonlife.com slash beyond. And welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I've been sitting on this one for a while. I really am glad to bring to you Oliver Berkman. He is the author of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. That has been a smashing success. It was a 2021 Financial Times Book of the Year and an instant New York Times bestseller. And essentially, the premise of the book is that 4,000 weeks is roughly the lifespan that we have if you live to be about 80. You've got about 4,000 weeks. He's rounding up there. And thing is, is that by knowing that finitude, that limitation, so to speak, and recognizing that in terms of time and control, he says that this can be liberating. He's talking all about time and time management and helping us to have a better perspective and be more realistic about what's achievable and and focusing more on meaningful work, but without feeling overwhelmed by trying to do everything at once. He also talks about trusting your intuition and how he's experimented with not having a detailed plan or constantly consulting to-do lists to lead to the positive results that he's trying to have and hold things with a looser grip, spending more time on doing what he wants to in the moment while still working towards long-term goals and having a good symbiosis between those two things. And that this isn't an instant quick fix to your productivity perspective, but that it's a a mindset that is gradually changed over time. And And I think that that's definitely why the book was received so well. And again, I can see why. One, he's a great guy, and it's great to have had this great conversation with him. But two, the book's amazing, and it's now out in paperback. If you have not had the chance to read it yet, or you need to revisit it, this conversation is a great primer for that. So I'll just get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Oliver Berkman. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Oliver Berkman. Oliver, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here. I've wanted to have you on for a while, actually. (laughs) What's funny is I was familiar with your book, and uh, I was talking with a friend, and she said, oh, you're talking with Oliver. 
I've read his work and it wasn't just the information about the topic at hand, productivity, but it was also like a, a master class in how to think well. And I thought that's a great way to put it. And I know that's, you know, flattering and everything to you. So I'm just really in, thrilled and interested to talk with you about your book, but also go beyond that. She sounds like a person of exceptional taste. So yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm, yeah, obviously that is a very flattering thing to say to a writer. It's, uh, it's all about trying to get clarity on some of these ideas and then convey them in a hopefully engaging and powerful way. So yeah. Yeah. Well, and you've been a writer for a while and this is definitely not your first book. In fact, it's not even really your first book about this topic per se. You've got two other previous books. The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Love that title. And then, Help! How to become slightly happier and get a bit more done. And I love almost the Beatles reference in that one. Help! So yes, I guess, <laughs> yeah, right. So that help was a collection of the columns that I had written for the Guardian newspaper, and then the antidote was a sort of more of a kind of proper book, as it were. So yeah, I guess this is my second or my third, depending on your definition. But always circling around a lot of these same issues. It's like you know figuring out what self-conventional self-help culture gets right and gets wrong, taking seriously the idea that we want to be happy and productive and live meaningful lives, but being a little bit skeptical about a lot of the um, the sort of prevailing ideologies of how to go about doing that. So yeah, that's definitely my, that's definitely my turf. I guess what makes this most recent book more, what is more specifically about is like our limited time and our limited control over that time. That is more of a departure, I, I guess. Yeah. Well, and for those unaware, the latest book is called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. And there's a couple different ways to go about this initial question here about that is number one, you know, obviously, what does the 4,000 weeks stand for? I asked a computer, hey, how many years is 4,000 weeks? And it said 76 years and nine months. Mm -hmm. And then time management for mortals is like, well, we're all mortal. What's the point there of calling us mortals? But I'm more interested in, obviously, unpack that. But then I'm more interested in, in your work, what led you in your path of, you know, noodling on all this and writing it, et cetera, as on all those topics you just listed out. What led you to this as, okay, this is the thought that I then expand into this book? at this time. Great. Yeah, that, that second one is I'm also more interested in that. So just quickly, 4,000, yeah, as you say, it's it's roughly an 80-year life, but it's actually less than an 80-year life. It's 4,100 and whatever, if you want to make it exact. I rounded it very blatantly and cynically to get the punchy number. But basically, the life expectancy of a human being in the developed world, with a few caveats, is about 4,000 weeks. As I hope we'll discuss, I think the really important point is that life is finite, not exactly how finite it is. Of course, sadly, many people don't get that much and a good few people get quite a lot more. But what they all have in common is a is a number that when you express it in weeks, <laughs> sounds kind of alarmingly small. And then yes, I like the subtitle Time Management for Mortals just because it's like, it seems to say like restrict the audience to just who it's for, but actually who it's for is, is all of us. So that's just like, this is my sense of humor, I suppose. There are lots of ways of talking about why I came to sort of land on this specific question of dealing with our finitude, you know, the fact that our time is so finite and that we have very finite control over it. I think that's an important second facet that we should uh, probably get into. But one way to explain that is just the sort of very personal one, right? It's like, this has been a thing that I really 
struggle with. And I think that it has been something that has motivated the way that I have engaged with like productivity and productivity systems and culture and everything, right? Has been, if you really sort of sit me down on the analyst's couch or whatever, you would say that it has been part of a kind of attempt to feel like I'm in control of my time and feel like I don't have a finite amount of it. And I think this is a very widespread thing. I think a lot of people who are kind of a bit obsessed with productivity and using their time well are, you know, it's very forgivable because we're all dealing with our mortality in one way or another. But but I think what they're trying to do in a certain way is is kind of escape the finite nature of of human life. And And I'm making the case in this book that we'll have more meaningful and productive lives if we can do a bit more to accept the finite nature of our lives rather than always trying to find ways to squeeze more in as if one day we might be able to squeeze everything in and be superhuman. Yeah, the concept of finitude is is an amazing place to start, I think. Basically, finitude, the definition of the word, you know, basically being, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the opposite of infinite is finite, finitude. So we have, like you say, 4,000 weeks or a little more than that, maybe less. And it's not just about the quantity, it's about the quality. And we kind of struggle with even comprehending one or the other, let alone together as like a, a Venn diagram of, of our time and what we spend it on, time and attention. Yeah, exactly. Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, one way I always think about it is like, sure, we only have this limited amount of time and that in itself can be felt as a kind of pressure to use it well or to find a way to constantly be trying to fit more in, which I think is the big sort of one of the big sort of curses of the modern age, especially. But also, you know, as many philosophers have noticed through history, we don't really have any time, right? You just have the very moment that you have. A lot of our attempts to kind of, especially in sort of productivity culture, you know, our attempts to schedule and plan out the day or the week or set goals for the quarter and all the rest of it. Not that I think these things are all bad and wrong and evil, but they're based on a kind of a delusion in a way, which is that we can sort of impose our will over anything other than this moment. And so I think part of the reason we're constantly getting in a tangle with those things is that we're sort of constantly trying to feel like we have a level of control and certainty over our time that we just don't have. So, of course, the struggle never ends. And of course, it always feels very, very stressful. I mean, we can talk in more practical, specific examples, but that's the kind of the thing that troubles us is like we want to feel secure. And actually, we're just not right. You're just like a grand piano could fall on your head in an hour's time. Like anything could happen. <laughs> <laughs> we never actually have the confidence and control that we want over time. So constantly trying to achieve it by trying to get more and more control or be more and more efficient and optimized or plan things more effectively is, is really just a sort of a, on some level, a kind of a, a futile attempt to escape the human condition. If you want to be, if you want to be grand about it. Yeah. And gosh, as a fan of sci-fi as well as uh, philosophy, I can't help but be just, I don't know, excited about this topic as I acknowledge that at the same time, others would be like, oh my gosh, get me out of here. This is insane. Because it is that kind of, well, time is a construct and, you know, it's the way you perceive it. And I mean, even just this morning, I think it was a Scientific American article that came through a f feed somewhere that said that there was new studies about how your heart beating has an integral part and they're doing research on this as to how you perceive time passing. And I'm not going to dive any deeper than that, just to say that's 
just fascinating to me is the perception of time. And, and I think to get at this is like most of productivity, it's all about this optimizing your time or squeezing the most out of your time or scheduling things. And I think there's, there's a give and take, a push and a pull that is constantly alive in me when it comes to, okay, have a healthy awareness and use that to your advantage, but also realize there's a practicality to this. Like you said, there's only this moment. Like right now, somebody is listening to what I'm saying days, months, weeks later, and the moment has passed for us, but the moment is present for them and <laughs> breaking people's brains. Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully not. This isn't that hard. But what I'm saying is, is that in this moment, there's only this moment, but there is a tomorrow coming, hopefully. And I've made a commitment to go do this thing. I told my wife I'm going to do this thing tomorrow. It's the weekend. And it's like, well, when that time comes, am I prepared to follow through on my commitment? So in other words, there's a certain amount of our character and our agency that plays into this when it comes to productivity that we don't always acknowledge in terms of making promises to ourselves, but of course, having the right expectations of ourselves and others to begin with plays into that. I mean, when it comes to productivity, it comes down to practicality. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I mean, we could go off in so many directions with that, but I think one of the things I'm at pains to try to convey in this book is I think if we really take account of our finitude, our limitations of quantity of time and our limited control over how things unfold and the fact that we only ever are in this one moment, if you really sort of get into that deeply, it's not stress-inducing, right? It's not a question of saying like, oh my gosh, I've got to seize the day. I've got to pack every day with amazing activities because there's so little time. It's actually really relaxing. It enables us to sort of cut our aspirations in terms of productivity down to a human size and say, I can use my agency and my willpower and my energy to try to influence the way the day goes and to try to make the best decisions about how I use the time and and to be a good person to interact with and be in a relationship with. But I'm not going to pretend that the sort of mastery of time that I think has often been held up as a as a sort of um, utopian vision by some sort of aspects of productivity culture. I'm not going to pretend that that is attainable. And firstly, that's incredibly relaxing because it's like, okay, I don't have to try and do something impossible here. I have to try to marshal my resources, my limited attention, my limited energy, my limited time to do a few things today, going to move the needle, make a difference, feel meaningful. And secondly, like that is actually the way to be more productive and to be more sort of ambitiously productive. So occasionally people want to say in response to some of the things I've written about, like, well, but if people didn't shoot for the impossible, we would never do anything. We'd never achieve anything cool as, as a society. And I'm, I want to distinguish between two kinds of impossible, right? I mean, by all means, it's the role of some people in life to sort of try to do things that have never been done before. And that's great. And that sort of moves society forward. And I love it. But impossible in the sense of trying to do that while also answering 200 emails a day or trying to spend, you know, all the time you want to spend on that while also doing a hundred other things that you probably should have said no to. That's a different kind of impossible. That's a kind of futile struggle to get your arms around infinity that is obviously going to get in the way of focusing on those kind of really impressive projects that you might want to be pursuing. So I don't know if this is very not a very structured point I'm making here, but but I just think it's like falling back down into the reality of our human nature and limitations is a big relief and it is not defeatist. It's the opposite of defeatist. It's like, okay, 
now I can get going on the things that I'm really capable of actually doing instead of constantly dissipating my attention and energy among far too many things. And I think what I was stumbling around to try to say and what you just said kind of meet in the middle as to you're saying this awareness of time and our finitude gives us two new perspectives, hopefully. One is you have a lot less agency than you think you do. You also have way more agency than you think you do. And you can hold those two conflicting ideas in your head at the same time for a better perspective on time and productivity. Yeah, I think that's a great way of a great way of putting it. Yeah. And one place that this comes together for some people really this resonates is just this notion which um in the book I attribute to Carl Jung, the great psychotherapist, but it's also um the subject of a song by the character of Anna in Frozen Two. So parents may be more familiar with this version of it, but like you only ever have to do the next right thing, right? You're only ever responsible to the next moment. Even if you've got an incredibly complicated plan that you want to try to follow, or you've made all sorts of promises to other people, or you are burdened with all sorts of family and work responsibilities, whatever your situation, you actually only ever can decide what you're going to do in the very next moment. And so that's all you ever actually have to decide what you're doing. Now, yes, sometimes in certain roles, what you might use that moment for is project planning and projecting things into the future and forecasting and predict. Absolutely. No problem with that at all. Scheduling. But it's still really liberating, I think, to be like, okay, this notion that I have to sort of make sense of my life or get everything sorted out in my life, that's not true. What you have to do is sort out the next moment of your life and then the next one and then the next one. So I think that is a really freeing way of thinking about it. Yeah. And I can hear people kind of brussling against that and thinking, yeah, but if I want to start to plan this big thing that I want to do, like, for example, you've written two and a half to three books, as you would say, that you have to start on a path towards that and work towards that over time. Now, I think what some people would say is, well, I've planned out the whole book and now I'm writing it and I'm just going and going. Whereas I think you're saying you just have to do the next right thing, which for that day is do whatever word count it is you had <laughs> for the book. Right, right. Yeah. So I'm, I have gone through a long process of different relationships with goals and targets and long-term goal setting. And where I've sort of landed is, of course, you. I'm not suggesting like abandon these and just sort of float aimlessly through life. I mean, if you want to do that and you're in a position to do that, I guess I don't, I don't have anything against it. But most of us are either not in a position to do it or don't want to do it. And where I've sort of landed is that, you know, goals are navigational aids to help me decide how I use a given individual moment. Now, if there are people out there who are sort of writing books or working on similar big projects, who've got it all mapped out, and they follow each step from the plan every day, like a machine, you know, a robot, and they love it, and it works, then like, I don't want to get in the way of that. But my experience of working with goals in that way has always been that they suddenly become incredibly oppressive, right? The moment I've got the big chart on my desk saying, this is what I'll be spending each of the next weeks on, and this is what I got to do each day of those weeks or anything like that. That's the point at which I'm just like, I don't want to do any of it. It's like I, I rebel against the terrible jerk who's telling me to do all of this stuff, even though that is me, especially for a certain kind of person wh whom I am. I don't know. You can tell me if you are as well, who's prone to sort of, you know, definitely back in my earlier adulthood anyway, kind of, you know, driving myself really hard and yelling at myself in a way for not, not, not like not doing enough. That kind of goal system just becomes another tool of the kind of, you know, self coercion 
it's no fun, obviously, to live in that way, but it's also not productive, right? It's not, it's not effective to be constantly trying to, like, if there's an energy in you that really wants to do X instead of Y, it's really helpful if you can have a, a work situation and a productivity situation that allows you to, to harness that desire instead of having to constantly squelch it and keep going with the thing that was on the plan. So I've actually found myself as I get older, really experimenting a bit more with asking, you know, what do I want to do right now? What would bring me pleasure to do right now? And it's not like you never have to put that thought aside because there's a deadline tomorrow morning. I mean, that happens, but it's really quite sort of, it's almost uncomfortable how, how little, you know, because I've asked that question so little in earlier stages of my working life. It feels quite strange, but actually the result is, apart from anything else, that you get to really harness those, those moods. And if I'm, if I really feel like, you know, writing an email newsletter, but it's not the day I planned I would do it. I mean, it's crazy not to use that energy to get that thing written. And then it's, then it's stored up for when it's going to be sent out. You know, it's like, it, it would be crazy to, to not be able to sort of surf those, those energies. So a lot of this again is to do with saying, look, I have limited control even over my own preferences and, you know, moods. So let's kind of see if I can work with that instead of against it. The metaphor that always comes up here is that of surfing. I cannot surf to save my life. I sort of lamely bodyboarded a couple of times once, and even that wasn't very good. But the, but the metaphor is, is very powerful, I think, which is like, you know, no surfer will achieve what they achieve by just deciding what they're going to do and storming forwards and not trying to work with the constantly changing environment of the water. And so it's just, you know, it, it's a similar kind of approach, I think, to, to our time. I love my dogs like I love my children. I care about them. Well, one more than the other, but we won't get into that. But I am committed to giving them both the best. And if you feel that way too, like your dog is a member of the family, then you've got to serve them top quality food that they deserve. Serve them Nom Nom. Nom Nom's made with 100% premium ingredients. That means zero fillers or funky stuff. My dogs love these great tasting meals and their nutritional needs are different than ours. That's why Nom Nom's nutrient packed recipes are developed by board certified veterinary nutritionists, freshly made and shipped free to your door. Right now, you can get a 50% no risk two week trial at trinom.com slash beyond. Say goodbye to boring dog food. Your dog deserves a reason to run to their bowl every single meal, every single day. And all dogs are individuals, so they deserve to be served like it. Nom Nom delivers freshly made dog food personalized to your dog's preferences and unique caloric needs. And again, 100% premium ingredients, no funky stuff. Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trynom.com slash beyond. That's trynom.com slash beyond for 50% off. Trynom.com slash beyond. When it comes to hiring, don't search for great talent. Match with them. Thanks to Indeed. With Indeed, you can ditch that busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Indeed leverages over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, making their matching engine your go-to because it's constantly learning from your preferences 
So the more you use it, the better it gets. I used to be involved giving my input into the hiring process for a few key roles that were connected to mine. And man, do I wish we had Indeed back then because we could have gotten much higher quality hires using Indeed. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility on Indeed.com at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic? For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays? What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort. Thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all-star sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond. Again, go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond. I'm glad you brought that metaphor up because I kept thinking as you were talking about this, I was thinking of the people that over time of doing this show have said, oh, I can't take all the structure. It feels oppressive. It feels like too much pressure. And I think of those people as when we're talking about goals and we're talking about forward momentum and getting stuff done and and all of that, I think of those people as don't give me the structure of putting me on a train track and setting me forward where I can't get off if I want to. And I think of those people more as people who would love to go on, say, a cruise where every day it's like, well, you can go any direction you want to, but you can't just wander aimlessly either. It's kind of kind of be a hybrid of both. I love surfing, though. That's a great I Not personally. I have never done it, but it's it's intriguing, scary for sure. But I like that <laughs> metaphor of, you know, you've got to work with the water that you're on. But I do like the idea of a boat where, because we don't live in silos, productivity doesn't just affect me. My decisions don't just affect me. It affects everybody on the boat. So I'm kind of the captain of my boat. I have agency. Again, I also have less agency because there are people around me that are affected my decisions, coworkers, family, friends, etc. Yeah. So well, what are some of the examples that you've seen with what you're talking about in this book and how it integrates with, you know, not just ourselves in a silo, but us in relationships? Well, I mean, there's a whole chapter in the book where I sort of really try to go deep on this because I think it matters so much that we need to see that in a very real sense, time is the sort of economics jargon that I use in the book is that it's a it's a network good as much as it is a budget good. In other words, it's not generally one of those things where the, like, the more of it you have, the better, and that's it, right? Money is a good example of that, where, yeah, basically, the more you have, the better. There are some caveats to that, but basically, time is not like that. If you just have lots and lots and lots and lots of time, we, we think that's the sort of dream on some level. But if it's not well coordinated with the time of other people, then you're going to be 
lonely, bored, and unable to do the things you want to do in life because almost everything we do that has meaning in life, whether we're talking about romantic and family relationships or work and business projects or recreation and sports, politics, like literally everything, it's so basic we sort of don't even see it, requires human beings coordinating using the same moments of time. It wouldn't matter if me and you both had like a hundred hours free this week if there wasn't one overlapping hour that we could use to meet and have this conversation. So I think it's really important to just see that sort of basic collective nature of time. And from that, I think one of the biggest lessons that I've, you know, and I still struggle with it, it's difficult, right? Especially like now I'm a parent for the last few years and it's uh, it's been sort of fascinating and amazing and wonderful, but really quite challenging to that notion that like somewhere deep inside me, I think that the perfect day ought to be the one where like I get up in the morning, I decide exactly how every hour is going to be spent. And then I just sort of follow through on that. And well, firstly, you can't do that in any kind of close relationship, never mind whether you have kids or not. But secondly, it's not even the best way to live, right? Even It's not even actually the, the desirable thing that it seems that it might be. Because again, on some level, most or all of the value in life comes from the ways in which, you know, other people get up in your business and don't let you stick to the schedule that you that you want to stick to. So it really challenges and puts pressure on that idea, which has its role, but, you know, which is very prevalent in productivity circles. I think that, you know, eliminating interruptions is where it's at. And you should try to sort of create these amazing silos of deep focus where you can just be in total monk mode. Again, I'm not saying that has no role, but it exists within a context where you wouldn't want to eliminate all the things you classify as interruptions because very many of them are just kind of life happening. I mentioned Beatles earlier. You just said something that made me think of the John Lennon lyric, uh, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. It's those interruptions. And in fact, it's almost, he's almost talking about what we're talking about right now is life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans or trying to execute on those plans even. Right. Yes, exactly. And it's like, and, and I don't think, as you've said, I think, I don't think that's an argument for not having the plans, right? It's an argument for holding them loosely, understanding what a plan is. And I quote in the book, Joseph Goldstein, the meditation teacher saying, you know, a plan is just a thought. And as long as we understand that that's what a plan is, great. Like they're useful. They can help us make decisions and choose priorities from day to day. The moment you think what you're doing with a plan is throwing down a a straitjacket over the future. You know, that that's uh, that's when the trouble starts because you you absolutely are not and the whole of the world will will try to get in the way of that uh, of that idea. I love that. The visual of the straitjacket on the future just kind of just gave me chills. And again, I think that's what people feel like and to varying percentages of awareness, they're either very aware and they say that is not for me or they're unaware completely and they maybe have a healthier perspective, but I think it's again, it's the holding both ideas and holding them tightly and loosely at the same time and not being afraid of the conflict that's there. Yeah, if there even yeah. is one, which it doesn't necessarily have to be. I'm curious, obviously the book has now come out in paperback. It's been out for a while now. You've obviously received some of the reception of the book, objections or embraces. What are some of the polls on that that you've seen? Yeah, I've had a ton of feedback and it's amazing. I mean, it's very self-selecting. So people don't generally tend to contact me and I expect any author to say like, no, I was indifferent to your book, right? So, so you, there may be many people out there who are indifferent to it and I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily know. And 
and not sort of hostility either. I think mostly just a very, very wonderful, gratifying, positive feedback. But I think it's more interesting to talk about the bits that are slightly different than just, this was amazing. I thought it was great. So there, I would say one thing that people say sometimes is like, okay, these are really good insights. And for like the time that I was reading the book and for a few days afterwards, I, I really thought about time differently, but how do I make it stick? How do I actually sort of, you know, how, how do you go beyond just sort of intellectually understanding something that you maybe hadn't quite realized before about your finite nature? And this is a really good question because it's sort of my own struggle too. And I think there's a, there's a temptation to look for like, whenever you come across a sort of insight that is powerful for you, and that seems to sort of hold a bit of an answer to your problems, there's a, there's a real strong desire to like find the system that you could put in place tomorrow that would cause your life to reflect that insight forevermore. And I think actually the problem with that I've regrettably concluded is that it sort of recapitulates the same mistake, right? It sort of says, well, okay, now I've understood that I can't do everything, that I'm going to have to make tough choices with my time, that I've got to let some people down if I'm going to focus on anything, that I shouldn't try to be getting my arms around everything. It's like, now I want to implement that system perfectly. And that is just setting yourself up for a new a new fall because we don't have that level of control, I think, over our um, time and how, how things go. So I'm interested in that question of like, okay, even if you agree with me, what do you do now? What do you do next? And really, I think you just sort of let this attitude seep into your bones. Now, there are specific techniques and suggestions in the book, and we can talk about some of them here, right? It's not, I'm not completely abandoning the kind of productivity hacks approach, but broadly, I think it's just the kind of, it's a perspective that you gradually sink into, really. In some ways, that's a bit of a downer, but it's the truth. <laughs> One of the things that I'm curious about is after you've gotten through the process of releasing this and now living, it's one of those things where it's like, hey, you're a productivity podcaster. You're a productivity author. You're now seen as an expert, but that doesn't mean that the struggle is any different or less real for us. I'm curious then with this new perspective and kind of echoing on what you just said, what's your approach now to projects when it comes to your own work and life? What does that process look like for you? I'm very happy to talk about this. I a couple, a couple of things that quickly spring to mind are sort of introductory to that. I mean, one of the things that's quite been quite challenging is that, you know, I wrote this book, which includes a lot of thoughts about dealing with overwhelm in fields like email and things like that, at least in part by sort of admitting defeat, right? At least in part by seeing that getting on top of an infinite amount of information is is not a thing that humans can do and therefore not the right focus for us. And then, you know, it's going to sounds like bragging, but this book has done really well as compared to my expectations. Been totally thrilled by how many people it's reached. And, and so now I get like way more email than I did when I was writing about how to deal with getting so much email. And it really puts it to the test, right? It really sort of, um, it challenges the part of me that wants to try to write a sort of 800 word reply to every email that I get and, and instead has to maybe put an auto reply saying, I'll get to it if I can, but please forgive me if I don't. All that kind of, it, it's a new level of challenge for the kind of perfectionist control freak in my psyche, which has been quite interesting. You know, the other point is just to say that I've really reconciled myself to the idea that my approach to projects, my approach to productivity is just going to be in constant flux. It's going to be, I think I'll always be evolving in how I do this. I think, I don't know if you would agree with this, but like we can kind of make life miserable for ourselves by thinking that we have to get the perfect final system. You know, I, I just don't think that's ever going to be 
ever going to be a thing. There are definitely some aspects of how I work that are really closely linked to, you know, the experience of writing this book and figuring out the things that I think I, I figured out in it. Things like, for example, limiting work in progress. So I try really hard to have an approach to tasks and to projects as well as a large at a sort of higher level of abstraction, where I'm not kidding myself that I'm working on 12 of them at a time. I'm working on one, maybe two of them at a time on the level of projects, and just one on the level of tasks at a time. And I'm sort of making myself making all the other ones wait and developing the sort of, it's sort of anxiety tolerance, right? It's sort of saying like, look, I've got five urgent things on my plate, but I'm actually going to consciously and proactively neglect four of them until one of them is completed. And it's not easy because the part of me that wants to sort of be super productive and, and fulfill my obligations and be praised by editors or readers, or whatever, that, that part of me wants to try and do them all right away. But I have learned the hard way that that's actually a slower way to get them all done. So that that is a very sort of fundamental aspect of what I'm doing now. And I'm also just the other point I'll just make is um, seeking to navigate through the day to a greater degree by intuition than previously, and to a lesser degree by sort of strict, structured time boxing. And just sort of trusting that process. It's quite hard because you think, well, I'm going to forget things or I'm just going to do the frivolous fun things. And, and, and it's quite sort of, it's quite scary in a way to just be like, well, no, what if I did just trust that I deep down knew what was most important to be doing at any moment? And it's quite revelatory. It's fascinating. I mean, it really does make you realize that your intuitions are a much more developed form of intelligence in some ways than your kind of conscious mind when it comes to navigating through time. So I can go into more detail, but let me stop there for now. It sounds like what you're saying there are referring to when it comes to that intuition is what a lot of people would refer to as muscle memory. Now, obviously our muscles have no memory. It's all mental pathways. And I was corrected on that at some point by somebody on an episode a year or two ago. And I thought, wait a second, they're right. This is great. It has nothing to do with how fit I am. It's my mental fitness. But it seems like, in other words, it is a skill that as you learn it over time and practice it, intuition can be honed and you can get better at it. And that's that's hopeful for so many of us. Whether we hate structure or love it, that still is something that in the moment helped me triage at a moment's notice what I should or shouldn't be doing. Triage gives a sense of urgency to it that sometimes and, and hopefully doesn't always have to apply. Right, right. No, that's I think that's a really what, nice way of putting it. Yeah. Basically, intuition, in my limited experience, works as a navigational aid precisely to the extent that you trust it. And so you have to be willing to sort of experiment with not making so much of a detailed plan or not consulting all your lists every moment and just sort of seeing how that goes and whether it is in fact the truth that you drop all sorts of balls and everything goes totally catastrophic or whether in fact it's not how it, how it goes. And my experience is that it doesn't go like that, that I'm at least as effective at keeping on top of things and meeting my obligations when I'm navigating that way as I was before, much less afflicted by the kind of resentful, stubborn procrastination thing where you're sort of like, well, maybe this is just me, but you know, where you make a whole plan for the day in incredible detail. And then you're like, oh, I feel oppressed by this plan. I'm just going to do none of it. And you end up sort of having a really unproductive day. And yeah, the, this wonderful, wonderful reward, I think, of being able to spend more of your time doing the thing that you 
want to be doing in that moment or with that portion of time and yet having that build towards your your long-term goals and ambitions for your life it's obviously totally context dependent and there are always people who will respond to this and say like you know if you just have to work 12 hours a day at a job you absolutely hate because it's the only way to keep a roof over your head like does any of this apply i think it does actually apply in various subtle ways but like of course this is all context dependent and of course you know i have a lot of autonomy over how i choose to use a given hour of the day but i think it is true for all of us on some level that uh, you know our finite nature means that we have choices to make and we can make them in favor of a life of grinding or in favor of a life of things that really genuinely feel like they're elevating us. What do you suggest when it comes to dealing with that feeling of guilt when we're not living up to a perceived societal standard of what productive looks like? Yeah, great question. I mean, there are all sorts of different answers to how you deal with your own specific version of that. You know, that's why journaling is good and psychotherapy is good and all sorts of things. But I think that the sort of big governing truth that I, I always come back to is the idea that like, you don't have to do anything in that existential sense, right? I mean, and this is where some religions and thinking specifically here of the sort of Christian idea of grace, I'm not, I'm not really religious, but I, but I sort of envy that kind of outlook because it's it's where they have the upper hand on the rest of us because they there's this notion that like like you are ultimately valuable regardless of the work that you put in and regardless of the standards you meet you meet that's a very powerful idea whether you get there through a religious perspective or not because it sort of puts you in the situation where like okay you might have to do a bunch of things tomorrow in order to get through your work or meet your commitments or even keep your job if you're in a very sort of tooth and nail kind of work situation but you don't have to do anything in order to like be allowed to be alive or justify your place on the planet, right? You, you, you could do nothing and you would still be like a fully worthwhile human being. And I think that what I find so powerful about that is it then actually makes it a lot easier to get on with lots of really cool things. Because one of, I sometimes say like, I think the, the best motivational hack I know, right? The best, the best way to get yourself to do something important is to truly believe that you don't actually need to do it, that you're doing it in order to express joy and in order and because you find it fun and interesting and engrossing and because you quite like to have the things that it would lead to, qualifications or the financial reward or whatever it might be, not because you kind of have to do it in order to fill some psychological hole and that you'll only be okay if you do that, right? So, you know, you see this. There are people who are throwing all their life into launching ambitious new startups, say, and you can get a good sense sometimes. Some of them are doing it because they think they won't be adequate human beings if they don't do it. And a few are doing it because they just take joy in it. And they would be fine, existentially speaking, if they didn't do it, but it would just it's just a more fun way of being in the world to do it. And I aspire very much to the latter rather than the former. I think, you know, contemplate the notion if you're in this kind of situation, I would say, like contemplate the notion that you that maybe you don't have to do anything at all today. And once you're freed from that. What uh, amazing things could you achieve if you were not feeling that they were absolutely essential in order for you to have any sense of self-worth? Well, that gets beyond the mortality, time management and mortality, and gets into time management and humanity. Right, right. It drills down a level, not just the word mortality. It drills down and says, okay, humanity, the meaning behind it, not just the, the practical and you know factual amount of data there. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I found this a very powerful in a personal way. And then when I communicate to other people, it seems to be powerful for them. It's like, consider starting from the perspective that like, you're okay, you're okay as you are, you don't need to go through massive self improvement or become incredibly more efficient or anything like that. You're, you're, you're fine. And with that idea embedded, now, what great things could we do that would be very meaningful for us as individuals and make a difference to the world at large? A lot of productivity books get lumped in or put in the category in the bookshelf of self-help. And I can't imagine any other self-help book being like, the starting point is, you're okay the way you are. You're good. Right. Right. <laughs> it's hilarious. It sort of takes away the market of self-help, right? Right. You, you should have to, you need, they need to create that space to improve. The irony is that actually, well, this is a famous quote from Carl Rogers, I think, the humanist psychologist who said the curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. And I think that's a very powerful insight. I like that. I like that a lot, actually. Obviously, there's so much more in the book. I'd love for you to maybe say, look, we've probably hit on it potentially already. But if people were to take, say, one thing from the book, other than that they're okay, and (laughs) they have more agency and less agency, is there another like nugget that you want people to walk away from the book with? I really like this idea of paying yourself first with time. And the phrasing of this, I can't even take credit for because it comes from Jessica Abel, who's a creativity coach and a graphic novelist. So, you know, full credit to her. It's this notion that the way to spend more of our time on the things that really matter to us is not to be in this mindset where we're telling ourselves that if we get through all the other stuff, if we clear the decks, if we tie up all the open loops, then we're going to have this kind of period of time that we can truly give to the things that fulfill us. What we have to do instead, I think, is just make some time upfront, right? Now, tomorrow, this week, for the things we care about the most, even if it's only a small amount, and just sort of deal with the anxiety that that generates, right? Because it generates that sense of like, but I can't do, I can't go work on my novel because like, I've got an inbox full of people needing stuff from me, or, you know, I, I need to go and help my kids with this, that, or the other. So, you know, if you really wanted to condense that to a tip, I would just be like, if there's something that you know you want to be doing with your life and you're not doing it, and that could be a creative project, it could be nurturing a particular relationship, it could be any number of things, like, don't make some big plan to become the kind of person who does that all the time. Maybe that's coming later, but just for now, you know, just, just do that thing for a little bit of time even though you have not yet cleared the decks, even though you have not yet set up your life to be able to do it every day and just see where that leads. Like my friend said, it's not just about time management or productivity. It is about a a new way or not just a new way, but like a way of thinking or getting better at thinking. And I think that even goes back to intuition as you were talking about earlier. I'm so glad to hear it. And right, obviously, that's what I'm trying to do when I'm writing the book is like clarify my own thinking and see where it leads and try to sort of hold myself to the thinking these thoughts through all the way to the end and say, well, if I believe that and I believe that, then maybe this third thing is a is a conclusion that I have to uh, accept. Yeah. Oliver, it's been great talking with you again. As I knew there would be, I sense in you a kindred spirit on this journey, navigating not just life, but the nuance and the productivity, the time management for mortals, mortality, humanity, et cetera, as we've talked about here. I can't wait to see what you do next, but I do like that I can continue to follow along with you in your newsletter. Let's point people to, again, the book's out now in paperback. If people haven't picked it up, it's a great read. I particularly think that 
since I'm always very much someone who loves listening to an English accent, I have it on Audible. So (laughs) I got to listen to you read the book, which is even more of a thrill. But let's point people to where they can grab the book, learn more about you, get on your newsletter because it's great every other week, bi-weekly, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. That's enough for anyone, I think. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah. So um, the book is available wherever you get your books. But information about that and the newsletter and everything else is all at my website, uh, oliverberkman.com. That's B-U-R-K-E-M-A-N. Perfect. I'm going to link up to all that in the show notes for this episode. And Oliver, again, I can't wait to see what you do next. Can't wait to talk with you again about this topic further on down the road. So thank you so much for being here. I'd love that. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. If you even have one at this point, maybe you threw it out while you were listening to this conversation with Oliver Berkman. And that's not, you know, the intended (laughs) act to have had happen here or persuasion, I guess. But it is meant to be somewhat of a, a change in your, again, productivity mindset gradually over time, learning to trust your intuition, learning to have a grasp yet loosely, of that finitude and acceptance and an awareness of your limitations in terms of time and control. Let that be liberating to you. Let that be freeing, not constricting. And that is the overall message of this conversation. I hope that you walked away with something along those lines. And if not, I'd love to hear from you. You can go to beyondthetodolist.com and hit contact and let me know what you think. Send me a message there. That's also where you can share this show there or from whatever podcast app you're playing this on right now. Do somebody else and myself the favor of sharing this episode with them. Again, beyondthetodolist.com. Hit that share button. Share it with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for sharing. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next episode.